Listener supported. WNYC Studios. If you have your eyes on the prize enough, like, you create the space that you, your life needs to keep making the work that you want to make. So that's how you do it, huh? Maybe that's why everyone and their mothers these days are cranking out a podcast with just a mic in a quiet closet. I'm Shamita Basu, and this is Work It, the podcast, a compilation of the best moments from the live event. And the voice you just heard was Caitlin Prest, creative director and host of The Heart. Now, The Heart is one of hundreds of shows that was launched with no backing and no brand, but it grabbed up listeners. Here's Only Human's Mary Harris, along with The Reed's Crystal West, The Heart's Caitlin Prest, Criminal's Lauren Sporer, and Hillary Frank from The Longest Shortest Time. So we just heard from folks who started from within a bigger company or a station, and now these folks are the folks we're calling the independents, people who launched independently, even though they may be part of a bigger podcasting network now. And again, I just want to start off by letting you listen to their voices on the air. So like what, was she hanging out at home in pajamas or what? No, no, she was naked. Naked, 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 naked. You were sitting with your kid at home, just like, so you were in your clothes and she was just sitting yeah. there naked for a month. Yeah. I cannot stand boys. I really get so annoyed by these men who act like their job is to coach women into being what they want to be. I think that's really what gets oh on my, my damn nerves. This is Scantron with episode 155. If he had gone the official route with the cops, he says it would have been a real pain. And then I'd have been up for another two hours, you know, filling out reports with him. But even this guy, the most patient, live-and-let-live guy in the neighborhood, eventually hit his limit. Welcome to the heart. All the things that you feel but don't know how to name. Hey, are you awake? Don't know how to put into words. <sighs> this is a show about all those <laughs> <Just> things. Like... <laughs> all right. So that was Hillary Frank, Crystal West, Lynn Casper, Lauren Spore, and Caitlin Press. Well, it was actually Phoebe. Phoebe it was Phoebe Judge. She uh, she's, she's at work. so i want to start off with your origin stories too because i feel like they're going to be a little different than what we just heard um and crystal i want to know a little bit about how you and your co-host decided to launch the read and how it's evolved over the last two years you really quickly got a got to one hundred and fifteen thousand subscribers so talk to me a little bit about how you did that okay um well actually the um producer approached my co-host kid fury Initially, because he had appeared on a podcast that was on his network. And so he knew that um, Kid Fury had a huge um, YouTube um, following. He had a very successful pop culture blog. So he approached him about doing a podcast. And he said, well, only if I can do it with my friend. Um, So he asked me to do it. And honestly, my first thought was, but black people don't listen to podcasts because, <laughs> you know, two and a half years ago, black people didn't. Nobody I knew listened to podcasts. And the only podcast I'd ever heard of was This American Life. So I just thought, I mean, that's fine. You know, we can go in the studio and do it. He said, you know, we only have to do one episode. If you think it's stupid, we just won't do it anymore. So we went in the studio and talked. Uh, we actually ranted for about an hour and 15 minutes about how, we, how much we hated New York. 
uh, which was edited out, thankfully. <laughs> and then we started talking about um, just what we had seen on TV that day, and the show just kind of evolved into the three-section format that it has now, um, just very organically. It just sort of happened, and the readership, or sorry, readership, the <laughs> listenership um, happened the same way. It was really word of mouth. Um, people who loved it were telling their friends, and for a long time I was in denial that anyone was listening at all. So it took probably six months or so for me to even acknowledge that people were actually listening to the show because it just seemed so foreign to me. And you said, like, black people don't listen to podcasts. What changed? Well, um, over the last year or so, there has been such a huge growth of um, black and other minority um, podcasts that have come out, which is fantastic, because now there are other places to point to when people say, well, you know, what else is out there? Because when we started, I think maybe Aisha Tyler had a podcast, um, Combat Jack, who is also on the network with us, um, had a successful uh, hip-hop podcast. But other than that, there just wasn't a lot that's a- that was out there. So really, it's been over the last year or so that the growth has just been amazing, and now there's a huge variety of, of shows from which to choose, and a lot of them are uh, black women and um, black queer individuals. So the, the diversity that's out there and that continues to come in is, is fantastic. Do you think about joining a larger network, or do you think you, your voice is sort of preserved by being independent? Well, um, our network do, is growing. Um, we're adding new shows all the time. So um, I don't think it's anything about joining the larger network. Um, what, we, what we bring in is really up to us, how many shows we do. You know, We have complete creative control over the show. We own the show. Um, we're paid for everything that we do. We are... It's, we're not going into this, you know, blindly or, you know, like we don't have, like we're not aware of our worth. We're very much, mm-hmm. you know, aware of who we are and, and how unique our voices are and we recognize ourselves. And so I don't think we're, it's nothing about, you know, being interested in going elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So Hillary, you launched independently and then you joined WNYC to kind of help with production and marketing. And I'm wondering what the advantages were of launching independently for you. Wow. Well, um, it's not something I thought about that much. I, it, so um, <laughs> there weren't really any other options at the time. Um, I, I launched at the end of 2010 and I did it because I had had um, a baby uh, like 10 months before that. And had been a freelancer. Um, at this point, I've been a freelancer for 16 years. And so um, I was just trying to keep my foot in the door. You know, the, the radio landscape was changing, and I didn't know. I knew I wanted to go back to work in some way at some point, but I didn't know how. And so um, I knew that you could make a podcast um, out of your home, and uh, you didn't uh, and, and it was really easy. So I just, I started, um, calling people during my daughter's naps. She would nap for like 20 minutes at a time. If I was lucky, 40 minutes. And, and I would call other moms during there. We would like coordinate, my kid's going to be napping at this time. Mine's going to, and then we'd be like on the phone. She's down. Okay, let's start. And like within 20 minutes, uh, almost always they'd be crying. Like, it was strangers, you know, to me. And it was um, incredible. And um, I only put the podcast out uh, whenever I felt like it, whenever I felt like I could. Um, And so that meant I made 20 episodes over three years, which is not very much by podcasting standards um, and not what anyone would 
advise you to do. Um, but I, I, that's what I did. And then at some point, um, I was making money in other ways and I had to decide whether basically I was going to do the podcast full time or I was going to, um, do something else, which I thought was going to be tutoring college applicants on their essays. Um, which I, I really, I actually really loved doing it. I love teaching. Um, and I just, I thought, well, I'll give the podcast one last shot. I'll do a Kickstarter. And I did the Kickstarter and it was more successful than people predicted. And, um, I made $10,000 over my goal and it caught the attention of, um, Dean Capello here. And, um, so the advantage of starting on my own was that, um, I, I could prove that I could, um, do that I could do this on my own if I wanted to. Um, and so WMYC had to present um, a deal to me that would be more advantageous to me to be here. What made it more advantageous? Well, having the support, I mean, the, the biggest thing is um, I have a wonderful producer here, Joanna Solitaroff. She's sitting right there. Um, and, uh, and I would not have been able to afford to hire somebody. Um, I get... And then I get all of the benefits um, that other people have of working here, like a marketing team and uh, events support and um, PR Has it changed support. the show at all? Has it changed the show? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's really lonely to sit in a room by yourself and, <laughs> and put something together and... Um, like go over in your head, is this, is this the right way to do it? Is that the right way to do it? Now I can just, I can pick up the phone and say, Joanna, do you think this is the right way to do it? Or do you have, do you have some better ideas? And, um, so the show has changed in that. I mean, yeah, it's, we, um, talked to a whole lots more different kinds of people than including, you know, childless men, um, (laughs) and have expanded it. When I started it, I thought it was going to be for, zero to three months. That's how limited. I thought the longest, shortest time was just the first three months of parenthood and I wasn't in it anymore and it didn't apply to me. And then I was like, oh no, now I think it should be about the first six months. And then it became the first year or two years, three years. By the time I got here, I was up to three years. And then when I I got Joanna on board, I was like, I'm thinking about making it just about family life in general. And she was like, yeah. So... That's what it is That's now. That's funny. So, Lynn, your podcast, Homoground, it's a little different because it's about music. And I'm wondering how you got started and grew your audience. Um, yeah. Actually, someone posted on their Facebook page this quote that I feel is really fitting. And it said, be the person you needed when you were a teenager. And pretty much my podcast started way back when I used to make, like, mixtapes and took my dad's cassette tapes and would, like, pretend I was a radio DJ and just doing all these things when I was little. Um, and growing up in North Carolina um, as a queer kid who I'm half Filipina, I kind of always felt a little different and out of place. I was always just kind of searching for people that were similar minded or people I could relate to. So I guess homo ground is basically the thing that I wish I could have found when I was a teenager. Um, just finding access to musicians who are speaking about experiences that you know queer kids can relate to, um, not having access to see these bands in certain areas of the country. Um, so yeah, I just started uh, playing music that my friends were making at the time, and they would tell their friends, and all of a sudden I just started getting these submissions from people, and I was like, okay, I guess I'm going to keep playing people's music. And so I started doing the podcast, Homo Ground, in 2011 and it's been four and a half years later and 
It's been really awesome. Uh, lots of submissions from people all over the world now. Do you feel like you're sort of meeting that bar of reaching, reaching the kid you were when you were a teenager? Yeah, I think so. Um, and a lot of people, um, a lot of musicians will email us or people who just live in areas where they can't go and see bands that they really like um, send us messages that are really heartwarming and just like really speak to my teenage self. And I'm like, yes, this is my goal with this. So, yeah. That's awesome. Um, so, Lauren, you and Phoebe Judge launched Criminal a year ago, totally independently? Yeah, it was a year January and a half. 2014 was our first episode. And originally it was once a month Once a month, yeah. Um, and really quickly ramped up. We're at every three weeks now, which feels like the most we can do. Um, but we're hoping soon to go biweekly. So we're starting to work on that. Talk a little bit about how the success of Serial impacted you guys. You're also true crime. Everyone here has talked about how Serial impacted everyone. Yeah. Rising Tide raises all ships. But you guys in particular, did it have a specifically... I think so. I mean, like, one... We get asked this all the time. I think the one thing I can really point to, though, is Julia Furlan put us on a list, a BuzzFeed list. Like, if uh, you... Like, Serial, try this. And we were right there. And that was, like, the, the single biggest day that that happened for us. So that was really awesome. Um, <laughs> So that was huge, and that was something concrete. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I mean, I feel like it's just, it, it definitely, I think, just exposed more people to podcasts, and then more listeners came. So how did you end up joining Radiotopia earlier this year? We, um, we had been making Criminal for about nine months, and um, just doing it ourselves, like paying for it out of pocket, recording at home. Um, and then they just called, and they were like, we're uh, going to do this Kickstarter, and if we meet our goal, one of the stretch goals could be to bring you guys on. And we had a few phone calls, and we were just, like, completely elated. It was really, really exciting. Um, especially, you know, we live in North Carolina. It can feel isolating. So I think to feel like people are hearing the show, they're liking what we do, um, it was really, really awesome. That's great. Um, so, Caitlin, I was listening to a recent episode of The Heart. And I loved hearing how excited you and Mitra were about joining Radiotopia. You were like, we're going on a business trip. But of course, like for you guys, that meant like you were going on a business trip to Canada to visit a guy who is like a submissive living with a couple, transgender. It was, <laughs> and it was still very moving and emotional. Um, so I guess I'm wondering how, how has it changed what you can do with the show being part of a larger network? That's a good question. I mean... This like the story of the heart is like the story of the the college radio show that you just couldn't let go of. You know, like we started out as audio smut on CKUT in Montreal, actually on the radio. You could believe it at six p.m. Um, all that's sex. Six p.m. <laughs> yeah. We never got a call. It, like no, <laughs> only once did we get a call in studio complaining, and it was like a, a hardcore feminist, like being pissed off about the way we had represented somebody in the last story or whatever. Anyway, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a long journey. Um, like, I guess there was about four years. We, we, okay, chapter one, CKUT. Chapter two, really believing that this idea it was there was there we had a bit, like this naivety that I think carried us forward that like 
radio is 24 seven and why wouldn't, why wouldn't somebody want to put this on the radio? Like it just didn't make sense to me. So we started knocking on doors and everybody would say no, like automatically. And just like the name itself was, was a little bit too much. Audio is that smart. why you changed the name? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that is the reason. Um, cause we love that name, but, um, Okay, the question. I'm going to answer Sorry. your question. Uh, how has being on Radiotopia changed things for us? Um, I think that for a long time, we, we were struggling for a sense of legitimacy. Um, because making a radio show that's like about sex, and not just about sex, like let's have a conversation, but let's accurately represent sex by recreating the experience of sex in audio form... Um, from a critical perspective. And when I say critical perspective, I mean like perspectives that we don't often hear um, and that people in positions of power don't relate to. So um, it was really, really hard for people to take us seriously. I mean, like I would go to conferences and, be, and have people say, so you make audio porn. Great. Can't wait to listen. And I'm like, no, that's not what it is. You know, <laughs> like... Um, and also just, you know, like writing grants, like trying to do the hustle of, of producing a show and trying to get money for the people who work on it um, so that they can, like, have a part-time job instead of a full-time job while doing this other full-time job on the side. Um, Talk to me a little bit about the hustle, because I feel like there are a bunch of people here who have questions about that, like right. how to get the support they need to... That's it. I mean, so being on, being on a college radio show is great, um, but we, we ultimately sort of severed our ties with the station so that we could pursue grant funding, because in a community station setup, any money that you get, uh, you have to share with the station or just fork it all, all over. And we are like, mm, no. And um, then we started trying to apply for grants and trying to figure out how to... I, I think the grant game is like trying... To, people have told me that it's like getting married. Like you have to find somebody who is a, is a good partner um, and who is a, aligned with your, your goals as a project. Um, and unfortunately, most uh, big foundations don't actually... Um, support media production or, or uh, art, like unless it's an art organization. So we had a little, uh, we had a hard time. We would go to feminist foundations, but they only support like direct activism. Um, and then the journalism foundations are like sort of afraid of a radical feminist show that's about sex called Audio Smut. Um, so, so, so that was hard. And then, um, I mean, really, what it came down to, what it always comes down to, unfortunately, is like well, fortunately or, or unfortunately, is audience. I mean, like, I think for us, we were, like, really excited about the content, and we had this idea about public radio that, like, you know, I remember I went to PRPD to, like, you know, <laughs> pitch my show. And, like, <laughs> my, my approach, I was like, I'm going to be that artsy chick that they're all, like, excited to talk to. And I knew immediately that I had the wrong approach when I walked in. It was, like, a sea of beige, and I'm wearing my polka dot skirt, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is not going to go well. And it didn't. <laughs> it really didn't. Uh, like, you know, nobody cared about the content. Nobody cared about the concept. Nobody cared about, like, oh, these are voices that you don't hear on the radio. I was so surprised by that, because I so believed in public radio, you know, like, it was about how many listeners do you have? How many mm. listeners do you have? Are you regular? You know, like, how, how consistent are you putting out the show? And to be honest, like, nothing changed for us until our audience grew. Um, what was the number you had to hit? I, mean, I guess I'd like each of you to kind of answer that, like, what number you're at or what number you had to hit to get there? Um, for us, it was like, we, we went from 
we, we hit t like 20, 25 per episode. And, and that happened because we were on, we did a piece on Snap Judgment. And our, uh -huh. our audience, like that, I think that's a And big, that changed things. That's a huge of... factor. I think like getting on a big show, a radio show with a big audience, like This American Life Radio Lab, or, I mean, Snap was a, was a fun surprise that it boosted that much. But that's when people started to say yes to, do you want to have a meeting? Uh -huh. um, which I had been asking for years. <laughs> and like when I said our audience has grown like that, that changed things. Lauren, yeah. was there a moment like that no, for I'm you guys? No, I'm trying to remember. Yeah. I know that things have picked up a lot for us since joining Radiotopia. I remember we had 52 on our second episode. Um, wow. And now we have, like, over a million a month. So I feel like it's been, like, kind of a grad. Very Whoa. Like, if you look, it's, like, super, like, it's, like, a total. Mountain. Were there moments where you're like, oh, we bumped? The BuzzFeed thing was a big moment. Mm -hmm. um, like, Roman Mars mentioned us once on 99% Invisible. That was, like, a huge bump. Um, but, no, we haven't, like, been on any shows or anything like that so it's been like pretty just like regular slow and steady got it got it do you have a moment where things like sort of shifted suddenly um it's what well, it has been pretty stat or like steady over the past couple of years um but being independent we've kind of can dictate how often we release episodes um but this past fall i added a co-host um, so we've been a little bit more consistent and just being more consistent, we've definitely seen a rise. So I think just kind of making sure we put out episodes on a regular basis has really helped. What about you? Was there a time that it um, Well, I think we were fortunate to come in at a time when um, there wasn't a lot out um, as far as like black, gay, pop culture at all. And so we um, were fortunate enough to receive a lot of media attention that I don't think a lot of newer podcasts um, are kind of um, as accessible to. So we ended up being in like the Washington Post and getting big interviews with Slate and being on Cracked and stuff like that. Um, stuff that put us out to a way bigger audience than what we would have you know, thought of previously, but still it's always been word of mouth and people being like really passionate about the show and energetically sharing it with their friends that mm -hmm. has consistently provided the most growth. And Hillary, I know you guys were recently on This American Life. I wonder, did you see anything from Oh, that? yeah. Like uh -huh. we tripled our audience. Oh. Uh, also, the podcast, it wasn't necessarily the radio play. Huh. Um, but we saw a bump previous to that um which was because we did a sex series and it was four parts and it ended with the this american life story so we had we had seen a bump at the beginning of that a couple months before and then and i also have to say that um we get our our best performing episodes are often um the ones featuring women of color and um we pride ourselves on having a diverse um representation on the podcast that's interesting. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, a bunch of you have done live shows or live events and how that sort of influences your listenership, why you feel it's important, anything these ladies need to know about doing live events. And I think you've, I think almost all of you have done them. And what's, what are like this, what's the secret sauce behind live events? Yeah, it was great. I mean, it was just super, we were so shocked by the turnout and it was just like so gratifying to like talk to people before and afterwards and just to like hear people reacting. Um, and it was really fun for me, you know, because I've been working with Phoebe for a long time, um, before, like long before we started Criminal. And it was so much fun just to watch her sort of like hosting live, right, and narrating live. And just the whole energy was completely different. Um, a live interview is always awesome. 
I don't know. It's like it just it, it sort of like refreshes you in a strange way. Um, I will say though, it is so much work to get ready for it, and you don't make any money. Like you like lose money. Um, but it's still it's good because if you like you know you this is a rather solitary enterprise. You know you're by yourself a lot in your head a lot. So I think getting out there and interacting with people um, is really fun. I would agree. I was about to say the same thing. I mean, like for us. Um, the intersection between, like, trying to bring radio as a sort of piece of culture uh, out into the world where people can consume it in ways where it gets the respect that a film or a play or a band would get is something that we've really believed in since the beginning. Like, the live show has always been a part of um, our ethos as audio makers. Um, But it's just re-energizing like there's something like for the it's it's you know it's it's fun to connect with the community that listens to your show but really it's like even more fun to have a room full of people clap at the end of what you did <laughs> you know it's just like wow and, and I mean, especially like when you're when you're doing this kind of work like every once in a while like you get kind of like oh god like am I gonna keep doing this like can I can I keep doing this like full-time job on the side of my other full-time job like um and doing a live event it just like so much energy, so fun. Um, yeah. How do your live events work? Talk a little bit about it. Um, well, our first one was um, actually down at Le Poisson Rouge, um, not in the nice performance area, but like in the bar <laughs> part in the back, that hallway uh, right by the bathrooms. Um, so it was super classy. <laughs> Uh, we didn't even have enough chairs for the number of tickets we sold. It was by far our raggediest show, um, <laughs> by far the worst one. But the energy in that room was something that I just had never. It just that was when the show became real to me. Like we had heard about numbers and advertisers, and and all that just seems still so foreign. But when we were in the room in front of these people who like had heard us and and knew how we were, that was just. It was the most amazing moment, and since then we've definitely um, ironed out the kinks. We've, you know, started booking in actual auditoriums now, so everyone gets the chance to sit down, and um, and we've figured out that balance um, between you know being alone in the studio versus being in a room of five hundred people. It's you know obviously we're going to have to adjust for the the people in the audience. So. Um, definitely, I think the best feedback that we've received from them is that they're able to catch the little things that um, audio doesn't catch um, when you can see people in person. Mm. So our facial expressions are very different when we're interacting with each other. Um, definitely, when we're interacting with the audience, we look at people like, you know, they are ridiculous because they <laughs> often are. Um, Kifir is known to fall out just on the floor in exhaustion so um it's it's that sort of energy and interacting with the people that makes the live show so much fun so i actually have one in chicago this weekend um Mm -hmm. and then we'll be in la back in new york we're going to london in september which is uh amazing so just the the chance to interact with the people is is definitely the most rewarding part and your live shows are a little bit different. You do mom speed dating. Yeah, so there's a couple things we've done. Um, we were recently in San Francisco, and I interviewed um, Roman Mars uh, live in Oakland. And that was amazing because um, we're friends in real life. And I, But I never asked him too many personal questions about his family life, and I got to do it live on stage, and that was really fun. Um, 
And then uh, we have this like signature event, which is called Speed Dating for Mom Friends, and it's what just what it sounds like. It's like, you know, it's really hard to make friends when you're a mom, and uh, sometimes you lose all your old friends, or they just don't leave, live near you. And so we take the guesswork out of it and do a whole like speed dating thing. And um, so we, it, you know, that that's it's it's a different kind of thing where it's not really radio, but we like to think of ourselves as like the place where people go um, to, to find other uh, non-judgy parents where they can feel safe and have conversations. And so it's not just the podcast. It's like a whole brand thing. And so we see the speed dating for mom friends as a way to um, convey that and bring people together. I feel like you're all saying the community building is huge, basically, for you guys. I think I, would, I forgot to say that it's also kind of like a fun creative project to sort of um, – try to create in a real space the world of your show. Mm-hmm. Like, that's something that we think about a lot. Like, um, the, our last event, which we've been taking on tour, was, like, a, basically a makeout party. Um, and we had this, this kissing booth um, that was sort of the centerpiece of the evening that was built by this woman that I met uh, naked in the yoga change room. Uh, she, like, came up to me and she was like do you have a podcast called The Heart? And I was like, oh my God, I never thought this moment would happen, especially now, (laughs) naked in yoga. And she was a carpenter and I was like, I'm trying to build a kissing booth. And she's like, I'm a carpenter. And I was like, this is great. Um, You're like, let's get some clothes on and talk some more. Yeah, right. Um, But, you know, like just sort of like figuring out ways of, um, yeah, like what would would the heart look like in a room? You know, Um, it turns out like, glittering tool everywhere (laughs) you know like um those kinds of things are fun to think about uh yeah just fun fun party things so i'm gonna go to questions soon because i just feel like people had so many questions about launching independently that you guys can address um but i do have a question for each of you which is sort of a simple one but what would you tell yourself if you were launching however many years ago you launched that you now know like what is the thing you've learned that you would like tell yourself five years ago, two years ago, whenever you launched? I would say time is not really time. It's like, it's about motivation. Um, I would tell myself, you know, being motivated and inspired to keep going um, is what will help you see past all of the obstacles that lie before you. You don't see the obstacles. You just see, like, this glorious future where you're making your radio show all the time or your podcast. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and that, like, having more time is not actually the thing. It's, like, being inspired. And so um, finding the people who inspire you and push you, who who can, you know who you want to impress because you're, you're working outside of an institution. You don't have a boss to tell you, you know, get here at nine. So um, sort of creating an institution among people who uh, push you, that's what I would, I think, you know, that's the most important thing that I think I've forgotten many times along the way. I love that because there always is not enough time, you know. But yeah, but it doesn't matter, you know, because right. if you're motivated, it doesn't matter, you know, because yeah. you're like, I can do this in five minutes, I can do this in an hour, I'll make time. Um, anyway, yeah. What about you? I think I'm going to echo what Anna Sale said about self-promotion. I think that it's something I really struggle with still. It's not my personality to toot my own horn, and it's certainly not Phoebe Judge's personality to toot her own horn. So we really struggle to be like, 
you know, check us out. Or, you know, like when we first started the show, we sent all these emails to like people. She and I both worked in public radio. So we sent emails to a lot of people in public radio who we knew. And it was just like this sort of like mealy mouth. Like we haven't been trying to make a podcast. Please listen. And people were back and they were like, cool. And like nothing really happened. But <laughs> I, I wish that I could go back in time and be sort of like more assertive about it. Like we're experienced in this field and we have an idea and it's a good one and we're going to work hard at it. And so I wish like I wish I could go back in time and sort of say that to myself. But that's something that we still struggle with now. You know, like people, somebody just told me that you should be tweeting like 10 times a day. And I was like, no way. <laughs> like, that's ridiculous. Like, we're not going to tweet about criminal 10 times a day. So I think like, I think I'm still trying to teach myself that like self-promotion is not inherently disgusting. And that, you know, sometimes you write a tweet and someone replies and they're like, oh, thanks. Like, I'd never heard of the show. And now I have. So sometimes it's just like genuinely spreading the word. And I think you don't have to feel oily about it necessarily. Yeah, I think um, in terms of kind of podcasting being like a little isolating at times, um, just reminding yourself that if you (laughs) keep being consistent and keep pumping things out, if you're not seeing results right away, to not get discouraged, because it does take a lot of time to kind of build those things. And I mean, once people find it, then they have all those past episodes that they can listen to. So if they're not listening right at the start when you're starting out, don't get discouraged. Um, just takes a lot of patience. I've definitely learned to just be patient. (laughs) Um, I think I would tell myself um, that just being me is enough, and I don't Mm -hmm. have to stress out about whether people like me or not. Um, I think the authenticity of the show is definitely what helped drive the, the growth that we experienced so rapidly and it was easy to get caught up in oh god how should I change like what should I do as the audience grows you know how should I change my voice to maybe make more people happy but what I've learned over the past couple of years is that just being me is honestly the only way I can continue to go into the studio if I go in the studio with someone else's um, desires or wants or or anything else really in mind, then it's not going to be authentic and the show won't feel right to me. So I think definitely just reminding myself consistently, if I had known then that just being me was fine and I wouldn't have to stress out, then maybe uh, you know some of the points over the last couple of years would have been a little easier. Hmm. I think I would tell myself um, to take what people say about numbers with a grain of salt. Um, yes, you can't be making money on your podcast unless you hit a certain number of listeners, but, um, you're not going to get there. And, and, and like it's in my situation, um, it wasn't that, uh, I couldn't get support from an organization unless I hit those very high numbers. You know, the, the, this organization was able to see that with their help, I could reach those numbers. Um, and so I think it's important to remember to, um, make the best product you can and be very clear about, um, who you're reaching and, and the power that you have over an audience, um, that's more than just audio that that's that's like what what are you what what is your um show going to do um to make people change the way they see the world or each other um like there's a huge power in that in audio and we all know that um and so it's not just about numbers it's about making the thing that will bring in the numbers great um i think there's a question over here yeah, I happen to have a microphone, which Hello. is handy. Um, I, my name's Susie. I work at WNYC. And um, I'm wondering how you guys, if anybody will talk about how you, um, if you were independent, how were you paying for this without going broke? <laughs> and um, when you merged with uh, distributors or people that's, that you kind of started this marriage with, did you get to own your intellectual property? 
I guess I feel like I'm still broke. Like I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's radio. I, I I hope that I hope this changes. Like I hope that this moment in in radio is um, actually transforms audio into a legitimate form of entertainment that people are willing to throw down the cash for. Um, I think that would be really great and exciting. Uh, but. Mm, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember conversations that Mitra and I had where she'd be like, I need a full-time job. I can't pay my rent. I'd be like, no, 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 don't get a full-time job. It's going to ruin the show, <laughs> you know? And and um, I was lucky enough to get a job working sort of a part-time gig on another podcast um, called Life of the Law. And and that allowed me, it was a magic accident. But I think that if you're if you're... If you're if you have your eyes on the prize enough, like you create the space that you your life needs to keep making the work that you want to make. Pay we didn't we we had this like we you know it was pretty scrappy like we would we would like trade tape syncs we would write to people that we knew we we'd send things out on air being like hey guys like this is a passion project if you do a tape sync for us and your obscure city we'll do a tape sync for you in New York. Um, or, you know, we found weird ways of getting people to record themselves. Like we would send our recorder in the mail. Um, but yeah, we paid out of pocket, but most of the time we would figure out a way to do it for free. Um, not accounting for, for our time, like, you know, how much our time should cost. Uh, yeah. And then what was the other question? The, oh yeah. I mean, that's one of the most amazing things about Radiotopia. Like Radiotopia is, they, we own, we own it. And they also, it's in the contract, they exert no editorial control over what we do. Yeah. We, with Criminal, we paid out of pocket. Although I think that you can do it for less than you think. Like, we, we paid out of pocket for everything, but we would mail recorders. We would just beg, like, people to go do tape syncs for us. Um, now there's this pretty good iPhone app called Ringer. I don't know if anyone's used it. It sounds pretty good. So if, you, if the person has an iPhone... Um, but yeah, we, we paid out of pocket, and then when we joined Radiotopia, like the first thing we did was pay ourselves back. Um, but it really was like a lot less than you might think. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, mine's paid by a day job and credit cards. Um, we started out, thankfully, because the network approached us. Um, they paid for our time in the studio, and it took about five or six months for advertisers to start coming in. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's totally different from um, some of the other experiences, but we do own the show completely, and no one else has any control over the content. Um, it's literally whatever we want to talk about, 100%. I paid for it by tutoring and um, and freelance working on some other podcasts. I helped um, Jonathan Mitchell start The Truth and worked on another, so just odd jobs. Yeah. Posey. Hi, I'm Posey. I'm at KUW. Um, you guys are called the independents, but I know that some of you, to differing degrees, work closely with other people. Um, so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, for those of you who do work closely with others, um, what are the advantages of that and what are the challenges? When you say others, what do you mean? Like our, our own staff or I mean, like outside our own staff? People who feel a sense of ownership over the project and want to exert creative control of some kind. I, I own my project. Um, I'm in partnership with WNYC. We co-own the, the content that I create with them. Um, but I own the name, and I've 
no one's ever told me not to do anything, including a sex series. So uh, yeah, it, it feels totally like mine still. Um, I have a co-host, and we have a pop culture podcast, so we're not really ever at odds um, as to what to discuss. And also, we'll start off on one topic and then get derailed by the smallest thing and start talking about something else for the next 25 minutes. So um, it's really just the two of us in the studio talking to each other. It's not really anything where one of us is like, I want to talk about this, and the other one just refuses, unless it's like a controversial rapper or something along those lines. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that um, I added a co-host in the fall, and um, his name is Jackson, and he came to me because he had heard of the podcast before a couple years ago and was a super big fan, um, and he used to do public radio and wanted to get back into it, so he was like, hey, do you need any help with anything? I was like, yeah, that'd be great. (laughs) So um, it's been really helpful in just having someone to keep you motivated, someone to help out, um, because it can be a lot of work, um, so just someone to help kind of carry that with you. I mean, you, you guys launched as three people, right? Yeah, we launched with, also with Eric Menel. That's another reason maybe we could afford it. We were splitting the cost three ways, but we all had full-time jobs. Like, we did this at night. Um, yeah, so, and then Radiotopia doesn't le- put any, exert any sort of editorial control or, you know, I don't feel... Do you, do you each, like, sort of co-own it? <laughs> well, Eric left. Like um, Eric moved to New York. Um, he works for Gimlet <clears throat> now. And he works on Mystery Show. And um, so now Phoebe and I have an LLC, and we own it 50-50. This has been actually, like, a huge <laughs> Mitra and I, like, whose show is this? And, I mean, we started out as a collective, um, which means that one person does all the work but doesn't have a title. <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, Sounds good. But, <laughs> but uh, that, that's, that was not in the Mitra days. Mitra came on and we were, like, legitimately partnered on the show. Um, but, you know, one person takes up more space and gets more attention and more credit. Um, and it's strange because I think that in our world we, we do have a tendency to sort of, like, associate... Um, you know, it's like the face of the thing. It's like the, the lead singer lead singer of the band syndrome, you know, like lead singer of the band. And it's like, oh, like, I love your work. And it's like, well, this is a band. And there's, you know, we all work here. So, you know, you're just the person at the front. Um, and so Mitra and I, we had really long conversations about whether to partner on the business because um, we had to, we formed an LLC and we've had, you know, we, we did ultimately decide to partner um, we're going to have a wedding uh, in October, um, which is to symbol. We're going to read our, our business agreement uh, instead of our <laughs> vows. You guys are invited. Um, uh, and I think we're going to make a, a radio piece, actually, about all of our sort of, like, really huge, big challenges in collaborating and sharing uh, this work. And, and um, yeah, it's, a, it's definitely a, a, a struggle. Um, I want to. I want to give you a good reason why, or like an example of something, without like being. I don't know. I feel like she should be here. Uh, um, but yeah, come to the wedding. You'll find out. That's yeah. I was just wondering. I'm not entirely clear. How many of you still have full time jobs in addition to making the podcast? And mm. is the goal to not be working another job? And what would it take for you to quit the other job and just totally do your podcast? I quit my job two weeks ago. Oh, oh my God. God. Thank you. Um, so 
So I, I mean, I was a very poorly paid adjunct, so it's, it's like exciting, but it was easier for me to jump than for Phoebe. Phoebe works full-time at um, WUNC, the public radio station where we live, and so she, we don't know if she's going to be able to leave or when. I mean, one advantage is that we do live somewhere cheap, you know, so that helps us out a little bit. Um, my last day at work is tomorrow. Woo! <laughs> um, I held on for as long as I possibly could just because there's no such thing as too much money in New York City. Um, but it's at the point where I honestly cannot juggle both, and um, it was starting to affect my performance at work, so I just gave notice, um, and I'm just going to be working for myself full-time and um, praying that you know it works out. So fingers crossed. I've been a freelancer since I graduated from college, and um, I, I, this is my first stable job in my life. I'm, I'm happy to have it. <laughs> um, I freelance part-time as a social media strategist, um, but I kind of like it, so right now it's good. <laughs> uh, I, I, as I said, I work on a, another podcast that I help sort of develop, um, Life of the Law, and uh, I am still working there, and I feel like I, it would be great to just work on the heart, but there's, like a, there's, a, there's also a tiny piece of me in that show as well. It would be hard, would be hard to leave. Um, I will probably stay connected somehow, but that's, that's sort of where the money comes in. And then small things on the side. I mean, we've been actually, one thing I will say is that we've, the heart even, like we've been getting paid quite well to, to take our live, live show on tour, like at universities and stuff like that. Um, you won't, I, I, would, I would agree with you, you don't make money on ticket sales, really, but like universities have the bucks. And also, there's a lot more uh, radio festivals popping up all over the world, and people have been reaching out to us and flying us out and paying us to do live shows um, at festivals. So that's awesome, too. Yeah. Uh, one more question? I guess. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I know that uh, you, Caitlin, have some advertisers that are just like small advertisers. And you, Crystal, mentioned that the advertisers started to come in like five months in. Um, I'm curious, like, did you reach out to them? Did they reach out to you? Do, and, and do they ever put pressure on you in terms of the work that you do creatively? Not at all. I mean, our founding sponsor is Babeland, and they, uh, that was an awesome thing that happened because, like, we were super scared, like, uh, like with people with public radio hearts of, of going into this sort of commercial territory. Like, I was really not comfortable with it. And finding, an, finding a business that actually has some, some kind of social mission, um, uh, they, they gave us way more money than market rate for our like our 5,000 audience per episode um yeah so that was sort of like a bond that happened early on um and they've never yeah now the the advertisers that we get through Radiotopia that like have nothing to do with our content like they it's very sort of like business transaction like they don't there's no there's no commenting but I will say that the content that we make I know the sponsorship lady at uh, Radiotopia is like it's hard to get people to 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 advertise with explicit content. Um, that's a real thing, but hmm. yeah. Our producer has a relationship with the Midroll, which is an advertising company um, for podcasts. So uh, once the numbers were there, and and what was considered successful two years ago or a little over two years ago is definitely not 
what is considered successful now. So I think if you're coming into podcasting with the goal of making money, you are going to have a long road to hoe because the market is just, it's way bigger now um, than what it was then. So I definitely feel like anyone who's getting into podcasting should be doing it because they really feel like genuinely passionate about whatever they're talking about. Um, But yeah, so thankfully um, he had a relationship with them and once the show started picking up, they started pitching um, advertisers to us and we've had some um, companies that have stayed with us um, pretty much since the advertising began and then we're picking up new stuff all the time. At this point, they just pitch us, um, the people who are interested in um, advertising on the show and we decide whether we're into the product or not um, and then we get people who come straight through email and say, hey, I'm interested in advertising on the read and then our producer will set that um, up with them independently. But So it's a mixture of both. When I joined WNYC, um, they took took over my underwriting, um, and and because it's public radio, there's a there's a pretty um, heavy divide between content makers and uh, the people who bring in the money. Um, so I don't really I don't have anything to do with that anymore, really. Um, but when I was doing my Kickstarter, part of what made it so successful was I had a very small audience, but um, I I was convinced that I could find um, funders who would back me because um, because of the content. And so I cold-called a bunch of different um, brands that I felt um, had supported me in early motherhood. And I thought, well, I'm, what I'm selling is my voice and my ability to tell a story. And so um, I called up, like, three or four brands that um, I felt a connection to, and I left messages for their marketing managers and all of them said, we've never done anything like this before, but yes. And they mm-hmm. gave me small amounts of money. I think they each gave me, it was like between $1,200 and $5,000. And um, it really, and they would be like um, challenge grants. So um, it would take a while to get up to, say, the first 5000 and then suddenly I'd be at 10000 you know. So, um, and, and th- some of those companies would say, like, Music Together said, we'll we'll back you on one episode if it's about music. And I said, okay, I'll make it about music, but you have no editorial input at all. You hear it the first time when it goes on the podcast. And so that that worked out for that like distinct amount of time. Um, we've just started really getting into advertising. Um, and a few times people have emailed us, which has been really nice um, because I feel like when we do reach out to people, sometimes it's a little frustrating because you just never hear back from them. Um, but yeah, that's definitely something we're trying to explore a little bit more, and I'd like to talk to a lot of the panelists <laughs> about it. <laughs> Excellent. Let's give a round of applause. That was Mary Harris, Crystal West, Caitlin Prest, Lauren Sporer, and Hilary Frank speaking at the 2015 Work It Festival. Both the festival and the podcast are produced by WNYC Studios and are made possible by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with additional support from the Harnish Foundation.